my arms are like so much darker than my face and my lips look so thin my lips look so thin it's driving me nuts from the third coast international audio festival in chicago i'm gwen maxi and this is resound Bending your eye yeah. beauty is pain then i don't need to be beautiful ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little sonic reflections we find all over the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on, then bring you the best of what we hear each week. I'm really not very interested in mirrors. I look in them more out of anxiety than I do out of a desire to see how lovely I look. The mirror possesses power over all of us. Staring back at us from that slab of glass is more than just an image, far more. In it, we see all our flaws amplified, all the critical voices, internal and external, that have gotten their hooks into us. This struggle between the self and the self-image in the mirror has always been a rich topic for therapy, self-help books, plastic surgery, and of course, radio stories. Today on ReSound, Reflections from the Mirror. We've rounded up three works by women who've created powerful stories and statements on the subject. One in Australia, one in the UK, and one in, where else? Hollywood. Stay with us. Kathy Fitzgerald tackles the idea of self-image head-on in her rich and beautifully layered documentary, Mirrored. In it, she escorts us through the lives and thoughts of people from 11 to 86 years old as they take a moment to examine their reflections and much more. I live on my own. My reflection's the only other thing that moves in the house. It's kept me company for 44 years. Always the same and always different. I've seen the little child who thought her ears were too big. The teenager who cut off her eyebrows because they were too bushy. The adult with strength and mischief in her eyes. I can see my parents in there, and their parents too. The thick black hair my granddad used to keep tidy with Vaseline. And I can see sadness that I'll never pass on the family inheritance of laughter to kids of my own. That's what I see reflected. How about you? Sometimes I have stood in front of the mirror and tried to wonder who this person is. Is it something different than what I am? Is that me or is this me? And you look at yourself and you say, This is our body, this is what we are, and one day it's going to be totally gone. Mirrored, a reflection by Kathy Fitzgerald. I 
my parents are Buddhists and every Saturday someone from their district hold a meeting at their house and today it was my mum's turn. So there's some chanting going yeah. on downstairs so that's why it sounds like bees. Yeah. <laughs> Iona, age 11, lives in Camberwell, London, loves to dance, plans to wear orange trousers when she's grown up. So imagine yeah. you're an artist doing a self-portrait. How would you describe your face? Um, I like my small, stubby nose. And I've got a really big smile. And I've got big cheekbones from my mum. Yeah, not such a big forehead, though. Deep brown eyes and my face is light brown. Everyone said I've got a washboard tummy. <laughs> yeah. I've got really big feet, too. I'm size seven. Do you like your feet? Yes. You don't, you don't mind that they're big? No. Would you look in the mirror when you're happy or when you're sad? No, when I'm happy, I look in the mirror. Do you? Yeah. Why is that? It's nice to see, and so I like seeing my smile. How does it make you feel when you see your smile? Even happier. Do you think you can see the kind of person you are on the inside? From the outside. Yeah. Some people say that eyes give away the soul or something. So if you look in your eyes, can you see your soul? Yeah. What does your soul look like? A great ball of blue. Oh. I always thought a soul would be blue. Something blue that floats around. Like a pinball machine that's bouncing around inside (laughs) you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What do you think your face might be like when you're 60? I don't think it's going to be very wrinkled. Not very wrinkled, maybe a little bit wrinkled. Mm. Uh, My cheekbones would be more saggy. Yeah. So what do you think your body might feel like when you feel old? It might feel sad, my body, because it can't do the things that it did before. If the mirror was sort of a recording device and it could record a message to you when you're old, yeah. what would you say? Keep the soul bouncing. Keep the soul bouncing? Yeah. because it's just got stuff from mum's house, stuff from dad's house, stuff from school. And, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Martha, age 17. So in here I've got different palettes and different nail polishes. Dreams of having her own makeup brand. Dandelion, Bella Bamba, Sugar Bomb, Rocketeur, which is one of my all-time favourite blushes. Lives in Kendall in the Lake District. Random lipsticks, just... What's your favourite lipstick colour? Oh. Do you want to just turn the mirror around for me? (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Can you describe what you're seeing objectively? Um, My skin is very pale. My nose is quite wide and long. My lips are very full. And then my eyes are quite wide apart, very blue. But they often look 
different colours with different clothes that I wear, which is difficult because you've always got to try and match it. And then my hair's very long, blonde and curly. So what would you change if I could? Um, I'd make my nose smaller. I don't feel like it fits properly on my face. I just feel that it's a bit too prominent. And then my cheeks are really chubby. I was the only person from my primary school to go to this secondary school. And I'd been so sheltered from everything growing up in such a small village. And then everyone's already talking about makeup and boys. So that's when heavy foundation and concealer came in. So I'd have no dimension to my face. It'd all be the same shade. All of my freckles were hidden. All of my, or what I thought my imperfections. I didn't understand that one layer of foundation was enough. What would people say? Oh, how are you today, clown face? And the worst part was when it had come from the sick formers and you were only in year seven. So you were, what, five years younger? Nearly seven. And I remember being so tired and so exhausted because I'd have to wake up an hour and a half early just to put on my makeup and to feel like I could face the day. There's still days where I feel so down and I just don't think I look good at all and my clothes don't fit right and everything just, it's a bit of a mismatch. Let's imagine that you can record messages in the mirror. Mm. What would you say to Martha, aged 70? Oh, I really hope I'm still adventuring and doing new things. But I just hope I'm a bit happier with my appearance and how I look. Age 30. We're in my flat, which is just behind Walthamstow Central Station. One room to call our own. But my kitchen and my bathroom have doors, so they are separate rooms. I hold on to that. And seven guitars. But there's more under the bed. <laughs> my hair's a little bit longer than I would like it to be. And I'm consistently surprised in recent years of how many crow's feet there are. But other than that, I sort of think I look exactly the same as I have done since I was about 11. What colour's your hair? Very dark orange. Is that you? That's the real you? Or yeah. No, no, that's the real me. I've never dyed my hair. Ginger to the core. Freckles, lip ring, and slightly sticky out ears. I can see light through them. So <laughs> Stained glass ears. Yeah, yeah, very slightly pink stained glass ears. What else? I think I can still see remnants of a recent black eye. But other than that, you sort of can't see anything. It was about midnight. As I was walking into a shop, two guys said something, something, lip ring. 
And as I turned around and was like, oh, what did you say to me? He's turned to his friend and was like, oh, my God, that's a female, that's a female. And what did they look like? Kids, 18, 19, wearing big puffy jackets because it was freezing. And they were shouting while I was in the shop, like, oh, we should go for a walk, we should go for a walk. And then when I left, they were like, are we going to go for a walk, yeah? And I was like, if you want to walk me home, keep me safe, that would be lovely. Yeah, I only live around the corner, so you can walk me home. And then I was like, I just don't understand why you won't tell me what you said. All you have to do is answer a question, and I'm not scared of you. And then he hit me in the face, and then he hit me again, and that's when I fell over. And then by the time I got up, they were walking quickly, but not running by any means, off down the street. And I took myself home. What did it look like the day after? A massive black eye, and then this whole cheek was swollen here. And, um, yeah, it's my teeth and my upper lip where there's not a lot of feeling. Have you had that kind of reaction before? If it was the first time it had ever happened to me, I doubt it would have made me so angry. But there's an accumulative effect, I think. Even when I was a kid, I had all my hair cut off, and I can't have been older than 12 and some sixth formers drove past and yelled dyke at the car out of me and I had to ask my mum what it meant. So people were labelling me before I even knew that they were right. My mum has always said you'd kill them with kindness. But that's quite tiring. A relentless being OK with everything is exhausting. I don't want to spend the rest of my life with a lack of sensation in my face or stab wound scars or anything else I don't want that and you just sort of think okay what do I need to do for that not to happen and that's what I should be doing but what would that require of you um sorry um maybe a kind of censorship that um I'm um, not really willing to do. age 46. You made it look nice. Yeah. Lives in Manchester. Teaches at the University of Salford. Who's shopping in there this morning? Me! <laughs> Feels he's grown into his face. Probably at a point in my life where I'm beginning to be a bit more gentle with myself. I've got two children and I've got a loving marriage and I've got today I've got a steady job. <laughs> and so... You know, I don't, I don't look in the mirror and see the chaos and the, the panic that I've had at various stages in my life. That's not quite there. I've got spiders in my nose. <laughs> you got spiders in your nose? Yeah. I can see one. Okay. Okay. Mirror. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a kind of uh, rectangular head, <laughs> rectangular face with. Um, very thin hair on the top. And my ears are bigger than I thought they were. And my eyes are sunken and dark. They look like I, I slept in 1976 and then not since. Five days' growth of beard. 
in this massive pluke that I've got growing there. Is that a spot? Yeah, a pluke. A, a pluke, yeah. So, it's yeah, quite a small pluke. Well, I tell you what, it's got potential though. <laughs> uh, I've got a new scar, which I quite like, just above my left eyebrow, about a finger span away. Now I fight. My three-year-old daughter was very pleased to see me and ran towards me and jumped and somehow managed to whack her head off my head. But it's a nice thing, you know. It didn't hurt at the time and it doesn't hurt now. She's written on you. That's lovely. Yeah, she's claimed me. You know, in a, in a row of daddies, then I'm the one with the hole in his head. And eyes and ears and mouth and nose, head, shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes. Millie's just turned three and she's confident and she likes to run and she's good at counting and she eats her vegetables and she's very proud of her sparkly shoes and when I get home from work I usually go to the front window and tap it and I see her face light up and then she runs around going daddy and it's uh, it's amazing She has the power to wrap me around her finger and to bend me to her will quite easily. Of course, eventually she'll turn into a teenager and try to destroy me. Gus, where would we have kept those old photos? Leah, age 54. Lives in a Leicestershire village. I think Agnes made this in year seven or something. <laughs> Writer, artist. Uh, you're asking for difficult things. Mirrors, photographs, I mean, you know. Used to have a penchant for wearing flamboyant hats. I see a face that I'm, I'm quite fond of and that looks at me with quite a friendly look. I'm quite crumpled about the eyes these days. My hair is still dark, but it is definitely coloured in. If it didn't have colour, it would definitely be very grey. Um, my hair needs a cut. It's definitely looking too long. My lips are a bit dry. It's not so very attractive. I don't know. My relationship with the mirror, I'm really not very interested in mirrors, I have to say. I look in them more out of anxiety than I do out of a desire to see how lovely I look, I suppose. What's the, what's the anxiety? Oh, at the moment, it's like, where are the hairs under my chin? Which seems to be something that's here. I can't believe the amount of bristles I seem to be growing as a... as a, Yeah, yeah, I'm not that old. Um, but, you know, here I am in my 50s and I seem to be sprouting hogs' hairs, like bristles underneath my chin. Um, I don't know. The more recent changes have been bagging around the jawline which I have to say I am watching with a certain degree of sadness, I suppose. Jawlines, once they go, I mean, I don't know what you can do. I know there are all these sort of exercise programmes that you can put yourself through where miraculously you turn into somebody who's all sort of beautifully jawed and no jowls in sight, but I don't believe that's going to work. Also, I just, I really actually don't have the vanity to do those things, the idea of doing those things every day. No, no, I don't think so. Um, have you ever felt any envy of your daughters? No, I think... Maybe, let's just think. There have 
been little moments where it's not really envy, it's a sort of feeling of regret and a feeling that somehow time has passed to an extent where I've lost something. And it's not envy. Um, it's the moment when you all clothes get raided and you see something that you used to wear looking beautiful on them because they're on young bodies and young bodies are always so gorgeous. And one's children are so gorgeous. I mean, I've got two very, very beautiful girls. They're absolutely lovely. And you see them in something and you think, oh, they look fantastic. And there's that just regret of, I used to look fantastic in that too. But no, it's it's not envy. Um, it's It's a mourning for what one was and time going on and it, and it's only transitory, it doesn't last for very long. But when you see that piece of clothing wandering off on their backs, not on yours, and looking wonderful on them, you do think, oh, there it goes. There goes me. Quite a lot of Bollywood evenings in Lincoln. And uh, Jasmine, 65, oh, lives in Lincoln. And it's got little diamond yeah. crystals on it. And it's got a netted on the top. Was a biomedical scientist before she retired. Loves dresses and silks and bright colours. When you wear this, you seem to just gracefully take your steps. <laughs> My eyes are very, very dark brown. My... Eyebrows are also dark brown, and I think I've been complimented for my teeth several times. <laughs> and uh, generally don't wear earrings, you know, during daytime, but sometimes now I've started wearing because mum always liked it. Do you ever see your parents in your face? Yeah, I always see them. <laughs> they are like in every every part of me, you know. I think they haven't just given me birth, but they have given me a soul, a beautiful soul. And do you ever have that experience of catching an expression where you think, oh, that was my mum? I do, especially since my mum passed away. So I've been thinking so much about her. And I look at myself and I see her sometimes, yes. I do. What's the similarity? Uh, I think when I look at my eyes and I can see my mum's eyes and the nose as well. My mum just used moisturiser on her face and she never coloured her hair and she just had one hairstyle. So if I tried to put a little lipstick on her, she wouldn't like it. She wouldn't let us do things. But... In one of the photos that my brother sent, because she was lying down, her hair looked a little bit out of, and that's not like my mum. And I said, what can I do about it? So I got a nice hairband for her. And I wasn't sure she's going to wear that headband. But when I went there, she allowed me to comb my hair and I put this hairband on her and she looked so beautiful. 
We looked into the mirror together and, you know, I felt so good that she let me do that on her, which she wouldn't, you know, when we were little. And why do you think she let you do it? Yeah, because she missed me. <laughs> she missed me and she wanted, uh, you know, she wanted to give me, you know, as much as she could to make me happy. She loved you so unconditionally and uh, even if you met her, you know, uh, you would feel her love even in a few minutes. Uh, I still feel truly blessed to be her daughter, you know. John Gilbert Garbett. Gil. I'm 86, 87 next month. Used to be a travelling salesman. I've sold ice cream, I've sold tea, I've sold bread, cakes. There's not much I haven't sold, actually. Lives near Margate. So if I can just get you to face the mirror. Do you want me to take your hat off? Because my head's cold. Just describe yourself for me. Somebody getting old. But I find myself fighting away from looking in the mirror because I'm not well. And I'm beginning to accept that. Margate is the hospice I proudly attend. Coming here breaks my week up and I look forward to coming because the friendliness and the social side of meeting other people in the same boat. Do you take a pride in your appearance still? Does it matter to you to be well turned out or...? Yeah. If I go anywhere special, I'll put a suit on. And if it's somewhere very special, a tuxedo. In the bungalow, then no. I put a pair of old jobbers on and a scruffy old pullover, but I shower every day and I do all my own washing, I do all my own cooking, I do most of the cleaning. I have a cleaning lady come once a week for a couple of hours. Some said, why don't you move and buy a flat? But I can't bring myself to do it because my wife's there and I... Don't want to lose her by moving away. You still you know? feel she's there? Yeah, she's there. She's there. And she always speaks to me. What does she say to you? Uh, she still loves me. And uh, I still love her. And it won't be long before we're together because we've got a plot together. Uh, that keeps me happy. When there's nobody around, you know, there's nobody else there in the bungalow. 
Um, what was her name? Pa- Patricia. Patricia. Yeah. And I think we were married for 25 years. Long time. Yeah. Not long enough. Not long enough. What did you look like when you met her? I must have looked handsome, otherwise maybe she wouldn't have fancied me. <laughs> My brown eyes, she said, used to fascinate her. So, you know, look in the mirror and think, oh, who's that old old man? <laughs> then I laugh about it. And this is what I tell myself when I start getting lonely in the bungalow. What's the measure about? I've got everything I want. I've got no financial worries. I've got a lovely bungalow. I keep it reasonable. I've got good neighbours. And I've got some lovely daughters. What more could I ask for? Nothing. So, that's life. Mirrored was produced by Kathy Fitzgerald for the BBC World Service. You can also hear Kathy dissect her approach to her work on the Third Coast Pocket Conference. Yes, Third Coast now offers two podcasts, ReSound, a treasure trove of wonderful audio stories from around the world, and the Third Coast Pocket Conference, a virtual encyclopedia of your favorite producers talking about their work, their strategies, and their secrets. Find them both wherever you get your favorite casts. Look at yourself. Look in your eyes. You ready? I am beautiful. I am beautiful. (laughs) Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today, we've gathered stories that force us to consider the pitfalls of taking the mirror and our associations with beauty too seriously. Next up, we turn to a world where the mirror is practically worshipped as a deity, television. Here, as producer Rebecca Hertz explains, there are the meek and the powerful, the hunters and the prey. It's just not always easy to tell the difference. I was offered a job as a segment producer on a brand new reality TV show. This show, I was told, was going to document triumphant personal transformation of the most noble kind. We were gonna take women who had no self-esteem, no hope, no possibility of changing their own lives on their own, and help them out. A metamorphosis was going to take place from caterpillars into butterflies. I took the job. The show was, indeed, all about transformation. I would soon learn that it was possible to completely transform bodies and faces with knives and chisels. But what I had not expected, what wasn't in my start paperwork or on any of the time cards I filled out every week, was that I would be transformed as well. Only, I wasn't gonna get any prettier. I am Philip Zimbardo. I am a professor of psychology at Stanford University. In 1971, 
Dr. Philip Zimbardo began an experiment that would lead him to a theory of how normal people can transform into evil people and do evil things. It was called the Stanford, Stanford Prison, Prison Experiment. We had designed it to go two full weeks, uh, and we ended it in six days. Which was long enough for some of the participants, who played prisoners, to have total mental breakdowns. Emotional breakdowns. And long enough for some of the other participants who played guards to engage in physical and verbal aggression, psychological abuse. Torture. And Dr. Zimbardo, the lead researcher, was also deeply affected. He lost his sense of right and wrong. A knowledgeable, aware, sophisticated researcher, Phil Zimbardo, was transformed in five days to be a relatively inhumane prison superintendent who could see suffering and not label it as suffering. And I know this firsthand because on the set of that reality show, it happened to me. At the start of every episode, a group of experts sits around and watches animations of nearly naked, ugly women as their bodies spin 360 degrees. The experts talk in detail about what can be done to make these ugly women pretty. Nose job. The animation freezes. An arrow points to the woman's unsightly nose. Facelift. Another arrow, this time on her forehead. She needs to lose about 25 pounds. A circle highlights her thighs. Full set of dental veneers. Tummy tuck. I'm at the surgeon's office in Beverly Hills. The caterpillar comes in. She's from the Pacific Northwest. I've already filmed her background package, met her husband, heard every detail of how much she dislikes her life and herself. She's in a hospital gown. And then the surgeon comes in. His hair is slick and he wears this European watch that makes this heavy clinking sound as he moves his purple pen over the caterpillar's face and body. So demonization is one of the most central processes of evil because it allows you simply to think of other people as objects. Uh, doctor, can you explain to us what you're doing right now? I'm marking her nose, her cheeks, her brow line. At some point, they cease to be human. And I'm marking these areas on the body where I'll be doing liposculpture. We're going to get rid of these saddlebags. How do you feel right now? This is an on-the-fly interview I did with the Caterpillar. Um, so excited? Could you remember to include my question in your answer, please? Oh, right, sorry. I'm so excited right now. She gets up, walks into surgery. Then we take lunch orders. California Pizza Kitchen. I get a salad. The surgeon tells me that he and his nurses are all going to eat sushi in the surgery room later, so not to worry about them. My phone rings. It's the supervising producer. Wants to know how it's going. It's fine, I tell her. The caterpillar's just going under. And then I have to get off the phone really quickly because I'm starting to gag. What is that smell? It's awful! Oh, the surgeon is using a cauterizing knife, so... As it cuts, it burns the skin and hair. It fills the whole surgery room with this sharp, revolting smell. I watch my first breast augmentation. The surgery table is completely upright, and the caterpillar is just strapped there, with her face covered by a cloth. They cut off the nipples and pry the pectoral muscles off the body. Then they stick a saline sack in there with a tube hanging off of it, then pump saline in. I can see the breast getting larger and larger as the doctor pumps. He's listening to Aerosmith. What do you think? He asks the room. Good size? You could go bigger, one of the nurses says. 
The doctor reaches out and cups the breast with a gloved hand. Yeah, he answers. We could go bigger. Our lunch arrives, but I find it difficult to eat. No one else seems to have a problem. After the surgery, we shoot when she's wheeled out. It's evening. The doctor explains the pain pump to her for her tummy tuck. There's a wound across her entire pubic line and a scar where her new fake belly button is. And once the drugs wear off, she's going to be in horrible pain. He presses a plastic bulb attached to a tube into her hand. She's barely conscious. She's covered in bandages. And her bandaged head kind of rolls around on her neck. When you're in pain, the doctor explains, just squeeze the bulb. Do you understand? She kind of groans. The bulb will deliver a local anesthetic right to the wound. She groans again, but it's muffled by all the bandages. The doctor can only do the post-op at six in the morning. I show up. I'm in Beverly Hills again. I have to shoot because there's no one else to do it, so I put up a light and roll the camera. The caterpillar's face looks like nothing I've ever seen before. Her lips are enormous and purple. There's bruising under her eyes, her face is swollen, and she's unrecognizable as human. We are social creatures. It's a basic need to belong, but many groups lead us astray. I'm in the office, and all the producers, who are all women, are standing around talking. Everyone looks really tired. No wonder it's day 17 with no day off. One of them says, The surgeon told me that if I just shave this bump down on my nose, it would transform my whole face. Chin lipo, someone else says. See this? She pats the underside of her chin with the back of her hand. See? They're all nodding. They all understand. A PA comes in with a crate. It's a shipment of diet food, someone says. I'm starting my diet right now. The group disperses quickly, following the boxes of low-calorie, non-fat chocolate bars. An email comes in from the co-executive producer. Can someone make a weight spreadsheet? We need to track their weight every day. One of the other producers starts to generate a bi-weekly email. It's the weight chart, detailing every ounce that each caterpillar has gained or lost since the last weigh-in. The co-executive producer responds. Someone gained six ounces? Someone writes back. It's the carrots. She's eating them because she's hungry, but she's eating too many. Carrots actually have a lot of sugar. The command comes in. No more carrots. A lot of evil exists, not because of what we do, but because of what we don't do. This is the evil of inaction. I'm on the grounds of the apartment complex, where all the caterpillars are staying. It's day 27, no day off. I'm supposed to be there for interviews, but I have to bring a camera into a room for an emergency. I start shooting. This one caterpillar, she's in horrible pain. Something's gone awry, and I have to get a doctor on the phone. He did lipo on her inner thighs, and her labia has now swollen to the size of two grapefruits. The doctor finally calls back. Totally normal, he says. The swelling will go down on its own. Just give her some Vicodin. Okay, I tell him. we Will do. 
After the surgeries, we spend a week shooting the panel of experts sitting around and talking about the before pictures of the caterpillars. Everybody points out what's wrong with them. Cellulite. Stretch marks. Saggy boobs. Circles under the eyes. Small chins. Overbites. No cheekbones. Large nostrils. Thin lips. I'm there to make sure that we're hitting everybody's story points. We forgot to talk about her loose stomach. She needs a tummy tuck, I tell them. And, oh, that that one caterpillar, she, she, um, she had that big mole on her nose. Cognitive dissonance is what happens when there is a discrepancy or conflict between behavior and values. We do or say something which goes against our beliefs. How do people resolve the dissonance? And what happens is behavior wins. That is, you change your attitudes, your values to fit the behavior. That's who you become. On day 32, I finally have a day off. Undressed, I turn slowly around in the mirror to see a 360-degree view of myself. My mind provides the animated arrows and lines and circles highlighting everything that's wrong. Buckle pads, skin creases, tired bags under my eyes, saddlebags, inner thighs, loose arms. Who is this person staring back at me? It's a Saturday night. That's when the head of alternative programming for the network decides he has time to watch the first cut of the first episode. We head upstairs to the screening room. All the big shots are there, waiting for the biggest shot to arrive. Blind obedience to authority is is critical also because all of our training as children is in fact to be blindly obedient to authority. The problem is not all authority deserves our respect. He finally arrives and sits down. The lights go down, the show starts. There's slow music, a lot of violins, it's emotional, slow pace. There are a lot of long dissolves between shots, a lot of crying. It chronicles each woman's journey. The head of alternative programming for the network starts talking immediately, and I take copious notes. He hates it. It's so boring. He says, we don't do documentary, people. There needs to be something dramatic. Something something dramatic has to happen. Come on, it's got to be a competition, he says. Otherwise, no one's going to watch this. Oh, everyone in the room says, oh, competition. Right, right. It's got to be a competition. So the whole office comes in the next day, Sunday, and we start recutting the entire thing. So... It can become a competition to see who's the prettiest girl at the end and who's going to make it to the butterfly pageant. Later that week, I'm supervising one of the editors and I have to leave the edit bay because I feel so sick. It's like I can smell that cauterizing knife again, except this time it's not the caterpillar's flesh that we're cutting. It's their very experience. I see my boss outside, and I tell her, this is just wrong. This isn't what happened. There wasn't a competition. She looks at me like like I'm crazy. We're out on the curb. It's March in Los Angeles, and it's 85 degrees, and the sunshine is like this blast furnace. 
Don't be so dramatic, Rebecca, she says. It's just TV. She's right. In the end, it was just a trashy, silly show that got astronomically high ratings because, and only because, it was such a disturbing train wreck to watch. There was something wrong with me because I couldn't deal with it. My friend who works on another show, he tells me, there are no victims in reality TV. Only volunteers. We can rationalize and justify anything. So after the fact, we come up with good reasons why we had to do it, why it made sense to do it, and, and I was, I was doing, actually doing a good thing. It's years later, and when I talk to my old boss about it now, she remembers the show as something she did that changed women's lives for the better. We gave that woman teeth, she always says. She didn't have teeth, and we bought them for her. Despite the teeth, I can't quite share my boss's perspective. And when I look back on my role in Stanford Prison Study, to this day, I still feel guilty. I mean, you should have ended it when the second prisoner broke down. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm laughing because I have a, I'm, it's a laugh of recognition. Only Volunteers was produced by Rebecca Hertz for Snap Judgment. While looking in the mirror isn't easy for most of us, I think it's safe to say that a woman's relationship to her image is at best complicated. So when producer Lee Redfern became pregnant with her second child, her first was a boy, she realized that she may have to help navigate the boundaries of beauty if she had a girl. Once upon a time, there was a beautiful girl. Beautiful in the sense that all small children are beautiful, and she was mostly good and kind in the way that all small children can be. She had porcelain skin and long golden hair, and she was called Bella, because the name means beauty, and that is what this story is all about. Who am I? I'm a teller of stories. Some call me a wise woman. Some call me grandma. Prologue. It's not a brother. When I was pregnant with my second child, I told myself I didn't care about gender. It seemed pointless to worry about something I couldn't do anything about. And besides, I allowed myself to be convinced by my three-year-old son that I was having another boy. It's a brother. After all, he had more recent experience of the womb than anyone I knew. But I did have enough doubt to check at the ultrasound, and when I repeated my son's confident prediction, it turned out Who'd have thought he was no expert? Little girl child Your mammy wants to sing you a song I was so preoccupied with how to break the news to my son. Three-year-olds can be slightly determined when they want something that it didn't really sink in. Until a few days later, when in the middle of some routine domestic chores, I found myself immobilised covered in a fear-induced sweat. A daughter. 
I would be mother to a daughter. <laughs> I hate you! I went to a dinner party at a friend's home last weekend and met her five-year-old daughter for the first time. Little Maya was all curly brown hair and doe-like dark eyes and adorable in her shiny pink nightgown. I wanted to squeal, Maya, you're so cute, look at you. Turn around and model that pretty ruffled gown, you gorgeous thing. But I didn't. I squelched myself. I always bite my tongue when I meet little girls, restraining myself from my first impulse, which is to tell them how darn cute, pretty, beautiful, well-dressed, well-manicured, well-coiffed they are. I don't need to tell you, parenting these days is a minefield. You only have to dip your toe into social media to be up to date on the many ways you're doing it wrong. The article looked innocent enough. Don't dumb girls down, implored the headline. Well, of course not. Who'd want to? I clicked through to author Lisa Bloom's central point that we're doing girls a disservice by telling them they're beautiful. In a culture that places so much emphasis on looks, she argues, we should be talking to little girls about the books they're reading instead. So logical, so sensible. But I already tell my son he's beautiful. Would I be damaging my daughter to say the same thing? Would I be doing her an injury not to? Anxiety. Depression. Anxiety. Depression. Anger. Anger. Irritability. Irritability. Low self-worth. Low self-worth. Obsession. Obsession. Perfectionism. Perfectionism. Lethargy. Body dysmorphia. Body dysmorphia. Eating disorders. Eating disorders. Dependency. As thrilled as I was at the uncharted experience of mothering a daughter, and with a nod to the cheery psychological poetry of Philip Larkin, they may not mean to, but they do. it suddenly seemed daunting,ly easy to pass on my every fleeting neurosis to a girl child. They fill you with the faults they had, then add some new ones, just for you, just for you. Just of course, I accept that I'm probably going to muck them both up, but it seems scarily easier with a girl. I don't fear a daughter because I think girls are difficult or more complicated than boys, which seems to be a common theme recently. I just assume that misogyny is as alive and kicking as ever, be it in Kabul or Turak. Equal pay, anyone? And one of the many intimate ways in which misogyny is expressed is in that enduring tyranny, the beauty myth. More than 20 years after Naomi Wolf wrote the book, we don't seem to have moved all that much in the way images of female beauty operate. With new Dark Spot Corrector Daily Moisturiser. Evens tone, hydrates, renews, protects and brightens. New results, no illusions. We all live in the culture we live in. So what messages about appearance, conscious or otherwise, will I pass on to my children? I really do believe there's a goddess in every woman. The trouble with beauty, as they say, is complicated. The first question I want to ask you is one that's just stumped the philosophers down the ages. I don't think they've been able to answer it adequately, so it's up to you. What is beauty? Well, there's a couple of different approaches you can take to it. If you're talking about the beauty of the human form, there's people who'll try and tell you that they can reduce it to a ratio. 
you can put up a beautiful face and rank them. This face is more beautiful than that face. And you'll get more agreement than you'd think that no accounting for taste? Not true. It can be accounted. It can be reduced to a number. Or so they say. Every evening as she tucked her into bed, Bella's mother, who loved her very much, would read to her from the big book of fairy tales. And each night she would fall asleep thinking about beautiful princesses and handsome princes, fairy godmothers and wise women. The trouble with beauty is that while culture fates the beautiful, we're also told to think that beauty is somehow suspect and that it's what's on the inside alone that counts. So why is beauty important, if it is? If I just ignore it, what does my little one learn from the silence? Growing up when I did, and doing well at school, prettiness wasn't so important. At the same time I knew, because a boy in my class told me, that I was the third best-looking girl in my year at Guildford Primary School. Hi Gail, hi Jodie. And that's not the prize it might first appear. To be considered attractive in the Australian suburbs of the 1970s, you had to be blonde and blue-eyed, and so almost by definition Anglo. The truly gorgeous Genas and Mooners weren't in the running. It's a hint about how personal our ideas of beauty can be and how bound by culture, despite what the poets and scientists tell us. It was almost inevitable that despite repeated and painful real-life evidence to the contrary, Bella would grow up believing in beauty, love and happily ever afters. And because she believed in fairy stories, she came to equate love and beauty and to think that love was a prize for beauty. I might love with my ears, but I think it's more about being a radio producer than being female. Any of us can have an immediate response to beauty and assume that the strength of this visceral reaction makes it more real. But I find the boundaries blurring. Is that woman in the restaurant really beautiful or just pretty? Should I try and interview her for the program? Is it just her clothes and makeup? Is beauty that we warm to any less beautiful? Is deliberate or touched up beauty any less valuable? When you're a teenager, you might know that beauty is subjective, but it still doesn't make it any easier to get out of bed in the morning when you're not feeling beautiful. And I still don't know what I'll be saying to my daughter. That was an excerpt of The Trouble with Beauty, produced by Lee Redfern for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's 360 Documentaries. To hear the entire story, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org.
Though the mirror is an anxiety-producing object for many, as I age, my relationship to my reflection is slowly evening out. On the one hand, seeing signs of aging on the face that I still think of as 16 is kind of freaky. On the other, I'm getting too old to really care. So I guess in the big balancing act of life, at least today, I'm breaking even. I'll take it. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxai. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Safer. Isabel Vasquez is our production assistant. Music featured on ReSound is provided by Patient Sounds, a private press record label and book publisher based in Chicago. Support for ReSound comes from Emma a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. Want to stay up to date on the latest Third Coast happenings? Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or subscribe to our newsletter at thirdcoastfestival.org. With so much to listen to and so little time, Resound. All diamonds, no rough.